Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 143, The Chess Pieces. Over the past year or so, when I started to read up about the War of the Roses, I came to a realization that much of what was building up was a story which had a great deal to do with England. While it does involve Wales, it's more as a player rather than as a centerpiece of the story. Many of the major players were English, and much of what had gone on during those 40 years of hot and cold civil war involved English lords and an English king. I really don't want to get too focused on that, because you can find yourself effectively telling an English story rather than what I wanted to do, which is tell a story which is Wales at its center, and Welsh people at its center. I also don't want to skip over parts, because... They have a lot to do with how Wales progressed during this period. Too often we have had major gaps in our story because there was so little historically left for us. So thankfully I've been able to find documentation, secondary sources, and other details that have given us better understanding of what we want to see from these stories to allow us to talk from a Welsh perspective as much as we possibly can while not avoiding the English side of the equation to give us a fuller understanding. My reason for giving this preamble, in part, is so that you understand that I'm likely going to be skipping major plot points in the war that don't really have a lot to do with Wales or don't have a lot to do with driving the story of the Tudors forward, and why at times I'll talk more in depth about people who are not necessarily in Wales but have connection to it as a way to talk about the major players and their influences in Wales, both during this time of upheaval and in the resulting aftermath. So with all that said and done, let's get talking about the story. In the years intervening, the rise of Henry IV and his successors had seen a sea change in the English lords of the marches. Gone were the Mortimers and many others, and in their place came a group of lords no less powerful, but a great deal less interested in their Welsh holdings. The marches, as mentioned earlier, many episodes earlier and for quite some time, had been suffering economically during the post-revolt era. Many of the lords who had depended on these holdings for their income either died during the Glyndor Revolt or died fighting either the French or the Scottish in the intervening years of those particular wars. In some cases, the family lines just didn't have the lineage to carry it forward, so they would marry into other families. In some cases, the entire line just passed away, so it would then be inherited either by someone new, or sometimes in cases it would be gifted to someone as a reward for their loyalty or service. This meant that these new heirs and their lands had very little linkage to them. They were less motivated to live on them. This meant that some English and even Welsh lower nobles would act in their stead, and in some cases that meant that they would climb their social ladder while their masters also did. In other positions, it meant that they had a lot more control than would have been the case, say, even a century ago. The Welshman William Herbert, for example, would rise to prominence in this era. His grandfather, David Ap Llewellyn Ap Howell, better known to history as David Gam, was a prominent Welshman who fought against Oenglindur and would later die at Agincourt for Henry V. Gam's family had claimed to have descended from the kings of Breshinog. Their power base had developed mainly as consistently loyal supporters to the Deboan family, 
marcher lords who were both earls of Hereford and marcher lords of Brennock from the 13th century onward. Gam's father bought lands in the Brecon area and, like the family before and after, served the English crown and their lords in France. Gam was a loyal royalist who had received rewards under Henry IV for his service in southeast Wales against Oanglindur. The Welsh family felt the wrath of the Prince of Wales as his troops raided their lands during this rebellion. Family stories, likely apocryphal after the fact telling, had Gam saving the life of King Henry V at Agincourt, which led to Gam's death during the fighting. The story went that he was posthumously knighted after the battle. None of this has been found as accurate as so often happens with family stories, as historians could not find any contemporary account which describes this act, shows any relationship to this act having happened. It has been explained, actually, after the fact as a Tudor-era story that came along and was eventually accepted as truthful by those family members that thought it a possibility. Gam's daughter, Gladys, would face a number of difficulties during this period as her family was driven off their lands in Wales during the Welsh Revolt, only to return a few years later after their house had been captured and burned down, they would return to the remains in the aftermath. She would then marry Roger Vaughan, and together they would have five children. Vaughan would join his father-in-law in France and would also die at the Battle of Agincourt with Gam. With the death of her husband and with five children, she would remarry, this time to Sir William Ap Thomas of Ragellan Castle, who also fought at the Battle of Agincourt. William had been knighted in 1426 and was called during his life the Blue Knight of Gwent because of the color of his armor. With William, she had three more children. William would be named the first Earl of Pembroke, a title still within the family to this day, and her son, Sir Richard, who would die during the War of the Roses. The Vaughns and the Herberts will be eager participants in the War of the Roses and will pay a steep price for that involvement. Another major power player in the families in Wales was the Nevilles. Richard Neville was the Earl of Warwick and the Lord of Glamorgan. His uncle, Edward Neville, was also the Lord of Abergavenny, and the two would have roles on the Yorkist side during the early parts of the war. Richard's grandfather had risen to prominence, fighting the Scots during the 14th century, winning lands and titles in the process. Ralph Neville became the Earl of Westmoreland. His father, who was unable to inherit the title, achieved one through marriage as he became the Earl of Salisbury at the death of his father-in-law. Richard, like his father, married into titles as he would inherit the title of the Earl of Warwick, though it did not come without issues as the Earl of Somerset, an ally to the Queen and her court, began a dispute over at least a portion of the land owned by Neville. This issue between the two became a catalyst to send Neville into supporting the Duke of York in his rebellion against the king. The Nevilles were lords in Wales mostly by abstention, as they had other concerns and more important lands in the southwest, which likely were more profitable. In the end of the medieval period, the marches were, for the first time since they had been established in the 11th century, represented little for these lords other than additional lands and additional titles. 
Many of the border families found themselves swept up in the war. In North, William Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel, a title which, of course, would menace Owen Glyndwr during his bid for Welsh independence and became a symbol of loyalty to the crown. This title, and specifically William Fitzalan, was intermarried into the nobility, in particular in this case Richard Neville, the senior Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury. He would fight for the Lancastrians, those loyal to Henry VI, whose family had served and been rewarded by Henry IV and V in the wars in Wales, Scotland, and France. As time would go on, and obviously with conflicting loyalties, Erendel would switch sides to the Yorkists, later fighting under the orders of his brother-in-law. Another Welsh-slash-English lord we're going to be introduced to is Humphrey Stafford, who was the Duke of Buckingham and owned lordships in Newport and Brecon. He would be a key player in the early part of the War of the Roses. Buckingham had been a ward under Henry IV and served with Henry V in the battles in France. He was there, actually, when Henry died. Stafford claimed his lands shortly thereafter and was declared an adult, as he had been a child and ward at that point, up until that point, and in the years after it acquired lands from places within Ireland and Wales, as well as other lands in England, making him one of the richest men in England. Some scholars claim that Richard Neville and the king were the only two men who earned more money in this period. Stafford was now a trusted ally to the king and served as his bodyguard at times. A true loyalist to the end, he had supported Somerset's accession to the head of government in the 1450s. So within all of these lords, there were different family equations that would go into their decision-making. There was different... Uh, if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. 
But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Loyalties split amongst various players for various reasons, and very similarly to what happened during other parts of English history, those divided loyalties created issues for the king because he couldn't depend necessarily that someone would remain loyal if there were reasons or advantages for them to cross the line, so to speak. And because so many of them own land in Wales, they could call upon people from Wales to help support them in whatever cause they were supporting at that point in time. Keep in mind that Welshmen, whether noble or common, served on both sides of this dispute and would continue to do so throughout British history going forward. And because of this, this created a bunch of issues for the king, not least of which these divided loyalties created a situation where an estimated one-sixth of the peerage of England was under some form of arrest during the first three years of the 1450s, a sign that things were very much teetering on the edge of outright war. Richard, Duke of York, arrived back in Wales in 1451 and spent the next year working with various marcher lords to drum up support for taking on the king and his court. Likely at this stage, it was seen more like those lords who confronted King John rather than the beginning of a coup attempt. Certainly, you can understand that a lot of the barons, earls, dukes, would be disgruntled with the king, with his court, with his French queen, who was considered to have too much power, something that would be an accusation that would go on for quite some time to come, and would want to wrest some of that back from the king. And so the idea of supporting someone with a strong position who had linkages into the ancestry of the king, who could be counted on to be a counterweight, would be attractive. It just comes down to, at this point, were they willing to risk a coup if necessary? Now, eventually, York drummed up enough followers to try and march on London, and in 1452, he did so. But as he arrived to the city, his support melted away, and he was arrested. Those that wanted change in the royal seat were not quite ready to hand Richard the throne, and unwilling to fully unseat Henry VI. As unstable as he was, and as disinterested as he was in governing, he still remained the king of the realm. The king and his court, in part to be seen as doing something, as well as in part to quell the flourishing-seeming rebellion, traveled through the West Country and the marches during the summer of 1452. They would meet with allies, enforce judgments on those who wavered into the Yorkist camp, and generally tried to keep the area on the king's side. Obviously, Wales had become a problem for the king, so much so that he finally saw a use for his younger stepbrothers. In 1449, the king named Edmund Earl of Richmond, an area and title which was previously held by his uncle, the Duke of Bedford, and an area which 
is nowhere near Wales. In 1452, however, at the height of the beginning of this issue, he went farther and gave Jasper the title Earl of Pembroke, an important peerage in controlling the western approaches along the southwest coast of both England and Wales. Jasper gained, amongst other things, control of four different castles along this area, two of which actually looked out onto the Bristol Channel, that would be Tenby and Lanstefan, and would be key early warning sites for invasion, for movement of troops through the Bristol Channel. All of this would become important because, of course, these areas had been a place where kings had landed in the past. Richard I, in fact, landed near this area when he was trying to take back his uh, kingdom from Henry IV. So there was precedent here. As well, of course, a lot of times some of the disturbances came out of Ireland, which Richard of York had most recently been in charge of, so you can understand why they would be a little reticent to just let him have free reign. The other two castles that Jasper gained, Kilgarren Castle, was a fortification in name only at this stage since it had been left to ruin even before the Glyndor Revolt and was never kept up after that. However, Pembroke Castle was the jewel in the new holdings of Jasper. This was a building that William Marshall, the Norman power in the 12th century, had built into a stone castle on the remains of earlier forts and castles which had gone back at least to the Roman times. Likely the area had been important even before that, and we know from earlier episodes had been settled even as far back as the Bronze Age, and in some cases the later Neolithic period. So these holdings were important. The earldoms of Richmond was based in northern England, as I said, north of Leeds, was a peerage that was to have a minor role, but it was important to the son of Edmund and his later claims of nobility. In fact, Henry VII would claim this peerage throughout his attempts to get back into England during the War of the Roses. The king hoped that putting the Tudors in Wales would help quell some of the discontent which it appeared to be growing during this period of volatility. The Welsh ancestry would likely be seen as a legitimate way to grow relationships in the area, especially in the former kingdom of Doithbarth. Along with Jasper's peerage in the south, in the Principality, or northwest Wales, there were efforts being made to recover some of the finances that were owed to the king from debts which had been accruing over who knows how long of a period. It was claimed that some of this was down to negligence from some of the officers of the crown who were not enforcing and collecting the owed funds, or in some cases embezzling those same funds. It may also be that there was no funds to get, as much of North Wales at this time was still suffering economically. So rather than necessarily being a case of negligence, it may just be a case of being unable to collect. It may also be that the Crown hoped to present a more law and order management style, as accusations had been made that Wales had become fairly lawless during this period. As politicians are wont to do to gain popularity, both then and now, they wanted to show themselves as being strong, and especially a king like Henry VI, who had been quite realistically claimed to be a weak leader, someone who as I said earlier, had shown a level of disinterest with governing if his 
court could show that they were willing to push an agenda of law in order to regain you know the the roads between various places to protect the travelers the pilgrims the merchants that had to travel those routes from thievery and murder it would be to their benefit of course the reality is very different the truth of the matter is is that safety was hard to achieve on the roads during this time period both in wales and in england much of the ability to enforce things from the crown standpoint was almost negligible there really wasn't an ability to be able to enforce some sort of police or soldier presence that would protect these areas in any shape or form short of going out and building small forts and having patrols at every level and at every step i don't know how you would have been able to do that and the cost of it would have been exorbitant especially for a kingdom which was still recovering from the petering end of the war against france there just wasn't the finances there and of course you have your lords who are disgruntled unwilling to support you probably not going to be really happy about the idea of you trying to raise money and you have a parliament which you know is going to be hostile towards your ideas. All of this would make it very difficult to enforce any sort of law and order agenda. And likely it was paper thin in command and not realistically something that was enforceable. And because of that, I think we see the weaknesses of what the king was trying to accomplish. And all the while, the king's health and lack of air continued to be a thorn in the side of the king. Powerful men continuing to doubt the closest advisors to Henry and York and others were only just awaiting for a spark to push things to a complete change. And in 1453, as Edmonton and Jasper were making inroads in Wales, their benefactor was about to suffer the first major mental episode. As Henry VI lapsed into a stupor which would leave the Kingdom of England in the hands of its French Queen and her advisors, and bring the Duke of York into kicking off the War of the Roses in an attempt to wrest control from that court. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening, and uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. We are still creating content and fun over at distractionsmedia.com and I would advise you to go have a look over there if you want to find out what else I'm doing and uh, if you would like to contribute to this podcast and helping us continue to grow you can do so at patreon.com forward slash welsh history thank you everybody appreciate everything you do all your comments that you pass along and uh if you ever want to chat with me, you can do so on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.